Again, we'll be reading Matthew 13, uh, verse 24 uh, through 43, so follow along in your Bible on the screen behind me. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my burn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man too can sow in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in, it, in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, that a woman too can hid in three, in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what, what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows, who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nolan. You may take your seats. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you all. For those of you who are new, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. And we are walking through the entirety of Matthew's gospel. And Matthew's gospel is the fact that Jesus, God become man, has come to bring us into a better kingdom. If you remember anything from this series, what Matthew's about is Jesus brings us into a better kingdom. I quizzed somebody on this the other day, and they were like, I don't know what Matthew's about. I'm like, am I a horrible teacher? <laughs> yes, Matthew's about God bringing us into a better kingdom, and one way to help understand this, hopefully you've read the greatest work of fiction ever written, The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, and in The Lord of the Rings, you have this group called hobbits, and hobbits are in many ways like Americans, right? They just, they want to live in their creature comforts, Okay, having a quiet, undisturbed life, okay, just watching things grow, eating and smoking and drinking with friends, right? And they just, they don't want to be troubled by anything. And then what happens is, is these hobbits are swept in, right, to, to a far bigger story. So they're swept off into other lands where they, you see these powerful warlords and there's these cosmic battles of good versus evil taking place. And when they return home, they're in the same environment, right? They're still the same people, but they're not. They now, they now think differently. You even see them, right, when they're back in the, the pub or the restaurant when they return home, right? There's a heaviness about them. There's a soberness about them. And what's happened is, is they haven't been brought into an alternate reality. 
but you could say they've been brought into ultimate reality. Okay, their mini-narrative, their little quiet life in the Shire has been brought into this meta-narrative, okay, what's most true about the world, you see? And so what Jesus says is when we come into his kingdom, he takes our mini-narrative, right? So we just think about ourselves, but then he brings us into a story that, that's far bigger and far greater. And so now we, we think differently. And so what we see in these parables today, as Jesus teaches, is it would be helpful to break it down this way. As we, as we think about what is the kingdom of God, okay, Jesus uses a lot of different metaphors to get at what it is. This is what we'll see today. The kingdom of God, it is a meta-narrative, okay, that's point one. It's a meta-narrative, and number, point two, it's a meta-narrative that makes you merciful, stable, and you value the small and slow things in the kingdom of God. Okay, so it's a meta-narrative, but it's a meta-narrative that makes you, it makes you more merciful, okay, more stable, and also you value the small and slow things, okay? And you may already be feeling this. The sermon may feel a little bit more heady, and so if you're averse to that kind of thing, just remember Jesus tells us to learn to love the Lord our God with our minds as well as our hearts, okay? So it may feel a little more heady as we learn how to think a little differently, but also there's going to be plenty of heart and practical applications as well, all right? So first, number one, the kingdom of God is a meta-narrative. So as we see these parables, in summary, Jesus describes, you see, you have this parable of the weed and the weeds, where at the end, all of the weeds are uprooted from the field. And then you have the parable of this leaven or yeast in the, in the dough, where at the end of it, right, the yeast has permeated the dough. And so what Jesus is saying here is he is describing the kingdom of God as God's triumphant renewal of all things, beginning in the here and now. Okay, but it starts slow, one person at a time, one system at a time, until one day the, the love of God will so cover the entire earth, right, all the yeast throughout the dough, that everything about your personal and your social life will have no more pain and only goodness and beauty. And in other, in other words, what you could say here is Jesus is painting a picture of the meta-narrative of ultimate reality. Okay, where is history going? What's your place in it if you're in the kingdom of God? And he's saying this is a meta-narrative. It's an all-encompassing description of reality. Okay, that's one way to define it. And Jesus is saying this is what's true about reality, whether you want it to be true or not. Okay, this is how reality works. Now, we live in a Western secular society, and Western secular culture is largely influenced by a movement called postmodernism, which uh, took root in the 20th century. And post- postmodernism, like at its kernel at the nugget. It's defined by a skepticism toward meta-narratives. Okay, postmodernism, it's a skepticism toward meta-narratives. So a postmodernist would say something like, we can't know, there is no absolute truth, okay, or if there is absolute truth, we can't know what it is, okay, because none of us has like a big enough view of reality to know what that, to know what that absolute truth is. So if you've ever heard or said things like, uh, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Or everybody has a right to live how he or she wants to live, as long as they're not hurting anyone. Or, well, that's just your interpretation. Okay, these are all influences of postmodernism. Now, because postmodernism says we can't know what absolute truth is, it views any person or group who claims to have, have the truth as being unjust or oppressive. Because as the argument goes, if you claim to have the truth, they would say, well, if there is no truth, but you say you have it, then clearly you must be doing it to wield power over somebody, okay, to use, like, your way of, of how truth needs to be to keep other people down and marginalize them. 
But yet that's, that's, this is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Not the marginalizing part, but he's saying there is an absolute truth. Okay, there is a meta-narrative, a grand story to reality. It's called the kingdom of God. Okay, so now as we think about this, first let's discuss a few of the problems with, or the issues with postmodern thinking. And first is that this idea that there, there is no absolute truth, there is no meta-narrative, it's internally inconsistent. Okay, and people way smarter than me, literary critics like Terry Eagleton, among others, are, have, have, you know, pointed this out, so this isn't just me up here, like, musing. Okay, but it's internally inconsistent. Why? Because as soon as you say there is no absolute truth or meta-narrative, that is a new absolute truth claim. That is a new meta-narrative, right? So you're saying, I have enough, uh, I have the comprehensive view of reality to know that there is no absolute truth or to know that we don't have enough knowledge of what that is. So you're saying, I know enough about reality to know that's what's true. The very knowledge of reality that I'm saying no one else can have. And often what you'll see is people who take the there is no absolute truth approach often end up becoming just as divisive as the other groups they critique. So postmodernists, they'll divide the world between the good people, those who say truth is relative, and the bad people, those who hold to universal values. And they have their own orthodoxies and sacred texts and their own witch hunts and heretics on the other side. So it's just as divisive, often just as demonizing toward other people. So it doesn't work on its own terms. But also second, and here's where it may start to feel a little bit more practical, it, it's unworkable. You can't actually live out this idea of there is no absolute truth in real life. And so as an example, there's a Duke professor of philosophy, his name is Alex Rosenberg, um, and he wrote a book, I think it was around 10 years ago, but it's called The Atheist Guide to Reality, and he is an atheist. And what I appreciate about him is in the book, he attempts to be a consistent atheist. And so what he points out, he does this in the first chapter, and it rubs people the wrong way. He basically says, if you claim that there, there is no God, okay, there also can't be any transcendent okay, moral norms that we have to submit ourselves to. And so you can't have a coherent ethical system without God, because anything you say is right or wrong, you don't have any right norm to compare to, so it's nothing more than emotional preference. And where this intersects with our culture is you have a number of folks who may take a postmodern approach to, say, sexuality and gender, where they say there is no transcendent norm that we have to submit ourselves to in this area. So with sexuality and gender, teach his own. Okay? You do you. And yet then those same people will turn around and say, you must not oppress people. You should not be a racist. Okay, it's wrong for the rich to trample on the poor. And what Rosenberg points out, he says that that's inconsistent. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, there's no transcendent norms when it comes to sexuality and gender, right? But there is a transcendent norm when it comes to racism and, oppressive, and oppression, right? You're just picking and choosing. It's all emotional preference. And he's just, he's pointing out philosophy 101 or, or logic 101, and so, what do we do with this? Okay, if on the one hand, we see that even those who most fervently profess with their mouths, there are no absolute truths, you can't help but live it out on the ground. Everyone believes, okay, with their emotions and actions, there are absolute truths in the world. However, in a sense, the postmodernists are right in that many who have claimed to have the truth have been oppressive. Okay, there have been many groups, religious and otherwise, who have used their truth 
okay, as a way to marginalize and demonize and bludgeon other people. And so what do we do with this? And what's so unique about Jesus and the kingdom of God is you could say Jesus gives us a non-oppressive meta-narrative, okay? Or he gives us a non-oppressive absolute truth. An absolute truth that when you believe it, when you're gripped by it, it actually leads you to be more humble, okay? more gentle toward people on the other side of the aisle from you. Why? Because at the heart of the kingdom of God isn't a philosophy, but a person, okay? a beautiful, powerful God who created the world and who made you in his image and says, I see you and I love you and I've chosen you. And God in Jesus puts on skin, okay, he becomes human, lives the life of a perfect human being. Okay, and then at the end of his life as a perfect human being, okay, he, he submits himself to the unjust structures of the world. Okay, being put to death on a cross, taking all of God's judgment toward everything that's wrong in the world and in your heart and in my heart, and then rises again to a new kind of life. And then you can't, and then he invites you into the kingdom, but the way you enter is by saying, I'm in need of a savior. I'm in need of your, of your grace. And so you see what happens is if at the heart of reality is a God, the God, dying for his enemies, laying down his life for you, to then turn around as a Christian and look at somebody of a different political affiliation or sexual orientation or somebody who just rubs you the wrong way and say, you're less deserving of God's kindness than me, right? That's a, contra- that's a living contradiction <laughs> to, the, to the very heart of the gospel when God gave himself up for you. And so we have this wonderful meta-narrative that, yes, it is an absolute truth, but it's an absolute truth that actually the more you live into it, the more a presence of good and humility you become to the people you're in relationship with. Okay, so that, that's number one. Jesus, he, he gives us a meta-narrative in the, in the kingdom of God. And it's a non-oppressive absolute. So, and we'll see how this now plays out more practically. So this isn't just something we're like, okay, I maybe learned something new. Okay, but this, this changes how we live. It makes us more merciful, stable, and we value the small and slow things. And we see that in these parables. So first, it makes us more merciful, and we see this in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. So Jesus paints this picture of the Son of Man, that's Jesus, he sows good seed, and then you have the evil one, the devil, sows bad seed. And so what happens is, is you have wheat and weeds growing together. Wheat are friends of Jesus, sons of the kingdom. Weeds are enemies of Jesus, right, sons of the evil one. They are growing together, and then you have servants of Jesus who say, hey, Jesus, there's weeds here. You want us to get weed whacking? And Jesus basically says, he's like, yeah, I know there's weeds there. I see them. Just let them grow. You're like, hmm. And part of the key to getting this parable is the, the weed that's growing is bearded darnel, which apparently as it's growing with the weed, it looks the same, and it only differentiates much later. And so you notice Jesus says this line, don't get weed whacking or else you'll pull up the, the wheat with the weeds. In other words, if you just go around like taking out everyone you think are weeds, they may be somebody, right? Maybe, maybe they're not yet and they will be, or they are, but they just don't look like it according to your judgment. They're going to become a wheat. And so if you take them out prematurely, 
right now they don't even have a chance to, to enter the kingdom. And so what he's saying here is, if you are my disciple, it is not your job to eradicate evil people. It, that's my job, which I'll do at the, at, the final, at the final judgment. And if you put yourself in the context of his original hearers, this probably would have made them angry because they're, they're feeling the heavy oppression of Rome. Okay, their, their, their families have been touched. Their money has been touched. Okay, they basically have nothing. And so they're expecting their Messiah to come. And Rome is one of the most tyrannical anti-God empires the world has seen. So they're expecting their Messiah to come and just start uprooting all the weeds of this empire, right? And just wiping out all the anti-God components of the empire. And Jesus says, I'm just going to let the, e- the evil and the good grow together for now. And so, man, how, how do we apply this? Well, First, as we continue to see evil grow in the world, in our own nation, as we see anti-God systems and practices continue to exist, if not grow, it is not our job to weed whack metaphorically or literally. And so, just as some examples, if the main thing that makes you cast a vote for someone is based on if they say they're going to bomb your enemies— Okay, or if you partake in the mob justice of social media. Okay, or if you just, you love getting behind a famous internet voice who like crushes your enemies in the culture war. That's probably not in line with the kingdom of God. And then second, think about our attitude when it comes to, to this, the wheat and the weeds. So I don't know about you, but if I can hopefully just be honest, like in my, in my darker moments, it's easy for me to look around in an apartment, okay, people on the internet, in a church, in a family, and start sorting people. Okay, and I go, I'm not going to point this way in case my finger lands on you. Okay, but I go, weed, 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 weed. And then metaphorically, I, I rip out the weeds, right? Like, and I'm like, Oh, you're dead to me, or you, you don't have a right to, to be in proximity to me, okay, and I want to move toward you in relationship. You know, Jesus is saying that's exactly what you must not do, okay, because we need to be in relationship with people who drive us crazy on the left or the right, people in our families and our workplaces, okay, with the prayer that is we are in proximity to them by the power of the Holy Spirit, if they actually are a weed, they, they become a wheat, right, and come into the kingdom of God. And for those of you who maybe are wondering, well, like, isn't, is Jesus calling us to just be passive here, like, not to care about evil? Because okay, we tend to think in cultural binaries of either you must be a zealot for justice or otherwise you're passive and doing nothing. Like, so should we not care about truth? But think about the life of Jesus. It was so clear he cared about truth. Anyone who engaged with him knew it, but every person who met him knew through his words or his attitude, he was also telling them, if you're my enemy, I will lay down my life for you. Okay, and so, so it should be for disciples of Jesus. Okay, we stand on truth, but it should be so clear to people that are opposed to us, or maybe you may be opposed to, that we would actually lay down our lives for them, okay, if we think they're a weed. So that's number one. We should be merciful people, not responding to evil with evil, but overcoming evil with good, as the Apostle Paul puts it. Okay, so we should become more merciful. Number two, 
You guys, you guys okay so far? All right. Okay, so we should become more merciful. Number two, we should become more stable. And we see this again in the wheat and the weeds. It's, it's so rich. So th- picture practically what Jesus is describing here. When wheat and weeds are growing together, what Jesus is saying is you should see profound beauty and horrific evil side by side okay, in the, in the day to day until I come to make all things new. And so if you've ever wondered, you know, why does it seem like sometimes in my history or today, like God's just really been there? Okay, like he answered, an, an, he answered a, an important prayer I had. I saw a life change in a way that only God could have done. But then there are other moments or seasons where you see just incredible evil or hopelessness, and you're like, God, are you checked out? And the, the, Jesus is giving us part of an answer here. It's like, this is why you see what you see. And you notice he says, I'm not the cause of the, weed, of, the, of the weeds. That's the evil one. Okay, but side by side, tremendous beauty and evil growing together side by side. And so as counterintuitive as it may seem, this should make us, if you're a Christian, more stable people. Why? Because of expectations and, and nuance. So on the one hand, if you're the kind of starry-eyed optimist, He's always like, everything's happy. Everything's just going to keep going up, 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 and up. I don't even want to acknowledge the darker parts of reality. What Jesus is saying is, no, you actually, you need to see it. Okay, you need to look at it. You need to talk about it. You have to help yourself and other people navigate it because there are weeds. There's sin in the world. On the other hand, if you're the cynic, okay, or the nat, you're like, God doesn't do anything. Life is meaningless. He says, you should never give up hope. Why? Because, one, there is wheat, okay, and Jesus promises the hope of heaven, okay, when he will make all things new. So Christians, in other words, Christians should not be the most frantic people on social media. We should not be the most frantic people at the dinner table because, yes, things are going to be really hard at times. Things are going to be really beautiful. We shouldn't be whiplashed back and forth. We should become more stable people. As I was thinking about this, think about how this plays out in the life of the church, I think the more a church gets this wheat and weed picture, each Christian becomes more of a stabilizing presence. And here's what I mean, because a, a church suffers when people are either too flighty or too afraid to critique. Okay, so first on the one hand, you, you may, this, this may be you, and I say this with all sensitivity. It's really easy when you see something hard and painful in the church, and maybe, maybe it's legit evil, to just say, you know what, I'm done with the church. Okay, and maybe you experienced it personally. Maybe you saw it from a distance. And Jesus in love 2,000 years ago is saying, I want you to be sober-minded. Because the wheat and the weeds here, it's not just out there in the world, but the, the word for the enemy sowed weeds among the wheat, it's in the midst of the wheat. So it also happens in the church. So Jesus, he wants to give us a fair warning. You will see and probably experience profound pain in the church. And so, but, but I've also committed my life to the church. I call the church my bride. And so the answer isn't, yeah, you may, if the church is so overrun with evil, yeah, the, the answer may be leave. Okay, but at large, the answer is not just discard the church. The answer is reform the church. Okay, in the same way if somebody mispractices law, you don't throw out the whole practice of law, right? You reform practice. Okay, so it should help us not be so flighty in terms of just, well, I'm just never going to be in the church again. But also on the other hand, 
you get some church environments where it's kind of like the family where you say, yeah, we just don't talk about the hard stuff in our family. We don't talk about the weeds. We don't talk about sin. We just want to present a pure front to other people, right? Or, or maybe to, to one another. And, but that's not good for a church either, right? Because of the reality of weeds. And so if we're a, if we're a healthy gospel-centered church, what this means is we, ha- we should have the humility and the courage to in love point out when there are blind spots or areas of growth, be it with the pastors, the leaders, the members, our programs, okay, so that we, we can grow. So we should also be able to critique the church, okay, and help it become more of a, a stable family of God, okay? So that's number two. This meta narrative, it gives us, it makes us more merciful, also should make us more stable. And then number three, it makes us value the small and the slow. And we see this here with the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, they go together. So Jesus describes a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, and they're really small. Apparently you need about 700 of them to weigh a gram. So really tiny. If you measure your coffee in the morning, hopefully you do. You know, a gram is not very much. Okay, but it can become this bush that's six to nine feet tall. Okay, so the point being something really small can become something really large. And then this picture of the leaven or the yeast in the flour and so a woman takes just a tiny bit of yeast, and she, then she takes three measures of flour, which is about enough to feed a hundred people. So a lot of dough. Okay, puts just a little bit in, and over time, yeast permeates the dough, and you get, you get the picture. It overcomes the whole thing. His point he, there being, often small and hidden things are very powerful and pervasive. And here's Jesus' point. The main way God tends to work in the lives of people in his kingdom is through the small slow, hidden things that seem really insignificant but are really powerful over time. And I remember watching this interview with, some of you may have seen him, his name is Simon Sinek. He teaches a lot on leadership. He, I think he's in a like, top 10 most watched uh, TED Talk. He has actually a really good talk that's useful for discipleship on how to, you should know your why. Anyway, this man, this leadership guru, Simon Sinek, he's in an interview and he's talking about it, this was seven years ago when he said this, but he's saying it's a trend he's noticed as he consults with young professionals. And he says, I've noticed a lot of people, they, you know, they graduate from grad school or university. They're really smart, really hardworking, really caring. And I, you know, we're, we're talking. And I go, you know, well, how's it going? They get a new job. How's it going your new job? Oh, it's not that great. I think I'm going to quit. Oh, what's the matter? Well, I'm just, I don't seem to be making an impact. Oh, well, how long have you been there? I've been there eight months. You know, and he's like, it's supposed to be funny, right? Maybe, maybe it's too close to home. I don't know, right? But this is, it's like, this is how we think, right? It's like, if I'm not changing the world in eight months or three years of being this, and then like, what am I doing? You know, I, I must be in the wrong field or life's boring. And see, the problem is when we fall into this instant gratification mindset, we apply this to, we apply it to career, we apply it to romance, we apply it to family, parenting, church. And we say, if things aren't amazing, and I'm growing fast, and other people are growing fast, and I'm making a big impact, and just like life is extraordinary in, in, in the everyday, then something must be wrong. And so what happens when we forget that the main way God works is through the small and slow is we take shortcuts. Okay, we begin to look for ecstatic worship experiences or amazing mountaintop experiences to know that God is real rather than the long, slow, hard work of communion with God through prayer and scripture reading. Okay, in, in the world, we, won't, we all want to do the long, slow work of making disciples 
and seeing small communities slowly look more like the kingdom. So instead, we try to take the shortcut of putting all our chips in with a political party or figure and saying, you need to force people into my version of the kingdom. With other people, okay, we place other people on a, on a sanctification schedule or a, a you-need-to-become-like-Jesus schedule. And as soon as they're not growing according to our timeline, we get really frustrated. We do this to ourselves. And I wonder also if because we miss that God mainly works through the small and seemingly insignificant, we, we miss the incredible moments of meaning that are in the everyday. And I think more and more we, we feel this way. I, just, I, I see it even in, just in the types of shows that are coming out. There's increased cynicism, okay, less hope. And it's like we intuit as people made in God's image that we're made for meaning and significance. But our life doesn't often feel meaningful, right? When we're sitting in traffic or changing the 30th diaper or plugging away at the 30th spreadsheet cell, well, 30,000th spreadsheet cell or email. And we're like, what is my life? And so then it, it feels meaningless. And so we resort to self-medication, Okay, be it through excessive media or unhealthy relationships or pornography or alcohol, just to numb this sense that just life doesn't feel as full as it should be. But I wonder if it, we feel this way and we medicate this way because we, we miss the significance in the everyday. And when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a seed, a seed that's almost so small you can't see it, it's so hidden like yeast and dough, you don't even realize it's taking place. When you are, when you're praying alone in your room for a friend, you're not just talking to yourself in an empty room to four walls. You're investing in that person's eternal future. You're planting a seed in the kingdom. When you are kind and merciful towards someone in your job or in your family who doesn't deserve it, you're not just taking the higher ground. You're showing that person that you're, you're part of a, a kingdom, a story whose people aren't picky when it comes to who we choose to show kindness toward. Okay, when you show up early to set up for church or when you come to worship service on time, you're not just being a good person or true to your word. You're creating a hospitable environment where other people can come in and experience the kingdom of God. Okay, when, you cl- when you clean that, that 30th diaper right, or serve someone who's poor, you're doing what Jesus says. You, you, you are called great in the kingdom of God because whatever you've done for the unseen and those who can't help you in return, you've done for me. When you clean that thousandth dish, when you clean your home, if you plant a flower in or outside your home, you're not just filling your time. You're, you're painting a picture of what the kingdom looks like. When I was in Kenya, you know, we went to a lot of these really impoverished villages, and what I loved was the leaders of the organization we were with is they, they taught people who were, you know, coming to faith and in these churches to just do something as simple as planting flowers outside their home. And what they're teaching them is, is the, the kingdom of God is not just spiritual, right? But what you may be poor right now, but when you plant a flower and you clean your house, okay, as, as small and simple as it may be, you're, t- you're reminding yourself and other people the world God's promised you that's especially true for the poor, So you know what, I, I wonder when, when Rome crucified Jesus, they probably thought 
they were just executing another small and significant teacher who created a little bit of a, a rise in a group of people. But little did they know in that the crucifixion probably looked really ordinary. What they were doing is aiding God in unleashing a meta-narrative of grace into your life where you become a person who's more merciful, more stable, and you begin to see the significance in the small and slow. Let's pray.